my name is David Thies. I'm one of the elders here at the church, and as Pastor Luke is having a well-deserved week or two off, uh, I have the privilege of speaking to you this morning. The great gift that Pastor Luke has given me to take a text that talks about the blend of popular culture with eternal truth the day after we celebrate Christmas. What do you think of that? That's a challenge. But I think it's a message. I know there's a message there for me that I'd like to share with you. Uh, and, uh, and then we'll, we'll see what application we can make to our own lives. It's not always easy to live in light of what we know to be true. We face influences and obstacles from many, many different places. And this is so from an eternal point of view, but also in the ways that we live our daily lives. Now, the writer of the book of Hebrews asks a question that I believe we should ask ourselves every day, a question that is particularly poignant at this time of the year. The question is, now that God has shown himself to us in his light, the light that is Jesus Christ, why would we not want to live in the certainty of that light? Many first century Christians were, were Jews who had accepted the truth about Jesus, but had also been a part of the temple, religious, and cultural life. And although they were saved, believing Christians, they wanted to return to their earlier lives, thinking that Jesus had not changed what they understood to have been required by God. So the writer of the book challenges this thinking, asking these Christian believers who had feet firmly planted on both sides of the cross, why would you ever want to live the old way when God has encouraged you to live a different way? Now, the first chapter of Hebrews, plus a few verses at the beginning of the second chapter, introduce this thinking that must have been very challenging to them. Listen to the text, and then let's talk about how we are being challenged by God in much the same way. First chapter of Hebrews. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, 
He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And that's the end of the text. Before we talk about it, would you pray with me? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise you and glorify your name, especially now as we celebrate your incarnation, your coming into the world as a meek and lowly baby to save the world, Father, and ultimately to sit down together in heaven. You have placed us, Father, in the midst of this place and this time, a culture that is earthly, and you call us to act within that culture to influence others, to be used by you as your instruments as you pro proclaim the gospel. Would you give us wisdom as we listen to these texts to understand the difference between our culture and the eternal truth that is you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, how do you handle the stress that comes from conflict between cultural reality on the one hand and eternal reality on the other? It's easy to do that, of course, when the two are in agreement, when the culture in which I live is in agreement with the eternal truth that comes from God. But it has always been the case, and it is certainly the case now, even for us, that culture can and does conflict with what we know to be of God. How do you handle that conflict? Let me suggest that none of us, certainly not me, are, is equipped to do a very good job of discerning the difference between culture and eternal truth, since, by definition, we are just like the first century Christians. Our feet are firmly planted in the culture that we have here. And at the same time, as believing Christians, we know the truth as it has been revealed to us by God. 
And yet, can we all acknowledge that culture is powerful? For me, uh, it requires a lot of time and thought. I used to think as a 19-year-old or a 25-year-old or even later that I knew a lot of the answers. And then I discovered that as I aged, I learned more and more about what I didn't know. <laughs> and I have to have time to sit and stare and think so that the, the chaos can become clearer. And the problem is that when I approach a question that has influence from the culture as well as the eternal truth that I find in God's scripture, I come with baggage. I come with a whole history in my life, things that I've experienced and things that I've known, things that were important to me, things that are then and things that are important to me now. I don't have a blank slate that God can use to teach me about himself. I've got baggage, cultural baggage. And as suggested in the title of this talk and the way I've outlined it, I want to approach this from the point of view of what we have known contrasted from, with the point of view of what we now know because it's very difficult for us to alter our life view to adapt to what God has shown us about our relationship with him at the same time we're being influenced by the popular culture. And if we can understand the difference between what we have known and what we now know in light of God's continuing to reveal himself to us, maybe, maybe we can get a clue as to how we are to be living our lives. And uh, the celebration of Christmas is a good time to ask ourselves some of these questions, since Christmas is both a legitimate celebration of the incarnation of God and a birthday party of sorts that reminds us of the reality that God came into this world as a baby, but also as the culture has massaged it and developed it and changed it, it has become a secular holiday that celebrates many things that are good but not eternal. If we place too much emphasis on the secular aspects of our celebration, we run the risk of watering down the eternal and spiritual aspects of the message God gives us in the second chapter of Luke's gospel. So following the theme of the letter to the Hebrews, I'm expressing these thoughts in terms of what we have known and by what we now know. So what have we known? Two different divisions, two different ways of looking at this. First of all, the spiritual or the biblical division. What have we known? And this was what the recipients of the letter to the Hebrews were dealing with because they had been exposed to all of the teachings of the prophets. That's the way the first chapter of Hebrews starts with a reminder that the prophets have spoken about all these things. And the prophets were not lying. They were inspired by God the same way the writers of the Gospels were. And yet it was not a complete story that allowed those people to understand everything about what was going on. They were uncertain about the connection between the way God had revealed himself before Christ and the way God now revealed himself in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. After all, if you go back and study, as we do often, what we call the Old Testament, we see a sacrificial system 
We see Pharisaic directives telling us how to live within the law and to make sacrifice, all of which, however, pointed towards what we would find in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, we live on the other side of the cross. Christ has come. We are the beneficiaries of his work. But for us, there's a simple biblical truth that we celebrate at this time of year. There really was an overcrowded inn. There really was a manger, a Mary and a Joseph and a baby born in Bethlehem who was worshiped by the shepherds who were keeping watch over their flocks by night, shepherds who were visited by the angel of the Lord who announced this great thing that had happened in Bethlehem. Now, secondly, there's a cultural knowledge that they had and we had. For those first century Christians, don't make, uh, don't make any mistake about it, there was a culture that had developed within that system that grew out of what the prophets had said. There was temple culture, cultural life, grounded in truths that had been revealed by the prophets, but that had taken on an entirely non-biblical feature that were the outgrowth of this Pharisaic system that was designed to promote the status quo that ensured the stability and longevity of that cultural system. We face similar issues of culture in our day, the result of which are my own and I think our own cultural confusions. And here, by the way, is where it gets difficult. You'll know that because I'll share with you in a moment what I perceive to to be where I have found myself focusing as I have navigated a culture in which I have found myself over the last 67 years. That's how old I am, 66, but that means 67 years. Some of these may resonate with you, and I mean no judgment other than that which results from my own confession of my own sin. What what, what are the cultural realities that we have faced that I put into the category of things that we have known. We argue with our culture over whether we should say Merry Christmas when we go shopping for presents. We talk about how today there are no Christmas programs in public schools. I grew up in a time when there were many Christmas programs in public schools. We have a political culture that has developed But I'm old enough to have lived through times when the political left claimed legitimately scriptural truths and and later a time when the political right does the same thing, an outgrowth of culture. And there's nothing wrong with those things. But when you define your success or the success of God in ministering to a divided world in terms of whether you accomplish certain things that are culturally driven, you make a mistake and you miss the point. I've many times said, having grown up in the 50s, can't we get back to the way things were in the 50s? It was so simple. Everybody in our neighborhood and in our community were pretty much on the same page and we did things and experienced things as a community that came right out of my faith. That's the way I thought and I still think to a large degree. 
And then a couple years ago, I met, uh, after not having seen him for a long time, my, who, a guy who was my best friend in grade school, who told me what it was like to not celebrate Christmas with Santa Claus and get presents as a Jewish kid and how he just sort of dropped out. And that's been true of his life ever since. And I felt, I felt convicted uh, and questioning of whether or not imposing my faith culturally on others may not be the best tool of evangelism. Uh, here's the good one, masking. Do we do it or do we not do it? Well, there's a legitimate scientific and policy debate that goes on. But there's also a cultural aspect to this question, as churches have taken stands one side or the other. Some say we're caving to the government. Some say we're not honoring the government, and on and on. And there's a cultural aspect to that that has caused us to focus a lot of attention on this question. And it's not, it, it's a proper question that we should all participate in the conversation over, but I want to suggest that if you define uh, the mission of the church, if you define the church by issues like that, you're again missing the point. Um, our church will not be defined by issues like that. That's not what makes us a church. In fact, I tried to think of a good connection to popular culture in the universe of important questions that churches deal with over the years, this one is nothing more than a scurvy little spider in the universe of important things to talk about. doesn't mean it's not important, but it's not who we are as a church. And then how about the secular celebration of Christmas? And I love it. If you've been to my house, you know that I love it. Decorations and music and gift-giving and family gathering, these are all good. But, and here's the point as we move on to what we now know, God has taken us further. And that's what Hebrews was all about. He tells us to base our lives upon what we now know about him, not what the culture has taught us about him. So what is it that we now know in contrast to what we have known in the past? Well, spiritually, biblically, uh, and this is what the people of, who received the letter to the Hebrews were, were thinking. Jesus fulfilled all that God's prophets had said would happen. The things that had been predicted, they happened, and Jesus did that. It was very hard for the first century Christians to live in that knowledge because they were so used to living within their culture, doing the things that the culture rewarded understanding success and getting ahead in the world in that context. What does the culture require in the name of their faith? And these were people, remember, who had seen Jesus come, be born, die on the cross, and then be resurrected and believed that he was the Son of God. And yet it was still hard for them to leave that previous culture. Well, it's easier for us living on this side of the cross. We've seen what Christ did. And that's good because we know those truths. But if we're not careful, we'll stay camped outside of the manger and not go further to understand the significance of Jesus, particularly as we are convicted of our sin and look for the, the salvation that Christ offers to us. 
uh, there's a, the cultural side of what we, know, what we now know. God teaches us that culture is to be engaged, but that it is not to control us. We think we have things under control culturally, and then God throws us a curveball. Imagine the two disciples who were on the road to Emmaus. They, they thought they had things pretty much under control. They were sad and depressed, but they thought they understood what was happening. Their eyes were kept from recognizing Jesus, the scripture tells us. I believe that at the beginning of that walk, they probably were talking a lot differently than they spoke at the end of that walk. Imagine the conversation that might have been taking place before the text that we read in Luke 24. And it's always dangerous to imagine what conversation might have been taking place. But let me suggest something. You know, the one says to the other something along the lines that, well, plan A, that's, that's the Jesus plan, was great while it lasted, and we're sorry that it's over, but let's move on and find another way to engage the culture in a meaningful way for God. We need to keep our heads down for a while, but another leader will emerge. I even imagine, say the disciples, that they were headed for some kind of a secret meeting in Emmaus where they were going to talk about what was going to be next, kind of like the, the secret meeting in Casablanca, if you know that movie, and where they're going so that the Germans won't see where they are and they're going to plan what they're going to do. You know, Victor Laszlo is going to be their leader and they're going to rise up and, 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 and have victory. Maybe the same thing was going on. Or, or another example of this would be, you know, Peter's craziness. When the soldiers came to uh, arrest Jesus and Peter, thinking that he was going to solve the problem by himself, defeating the entire Roman army, you know, is ready to pick up a sword and go to battle. And Jesus had to calm him down and say, Peter, you don't get it. You don't get what this truth is that I'm here to proclaim. Peter had to learn what Jesus taught the two Emmaus-headed disciples after their eyes were open. He said this, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in those last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by, by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That's the message the writer of the book of Hebrews gives about who this Jesus was. And we need to learn and remember the same thing. The disciples on the road to Emmaus thought that they had just witnessed a defeat. In fact, what they knew had happened was a victory, a victory of eternal consequence. We love celebrating the incarnation of God in the person of a little baby in Bethlehem, a little baby who would go on to become the radiance of the glory of God and the imprint of his nature, all powerful and capable of solving all problems and particularly the most important problem, the problem of sin. You see, our, our attempts to manipulate culture to accomplish God's goals really miss the point because we'll try all kinds of things that don't work. And why don't they work? It's because they depend upon us they depend on our persuasive ability, our political power, our wealth, our education. And we just get stuck thinking that with those tools, we can do anything that we want to, and God will look at us and say, good job. 
In fact, God works with culture. He uses culture, but culture never dictates to God. And so we're careful as we come to understand the things that we now know as opposed to the things that we have known. We're careful as we do things like celebrate Christmas. Careful in the midst of all the good things about our celebration, you know, the family time and the warmth and the sharing of gifts, the singing about the manger into which a baby was placed because there were no rooms available. We're careful to recall that the baby in the manger was and is, as the writer of Hebrews said, the radiance of the glory of God. And we come to this application of the text not as winners or losers of culture wars, as much as we love fighting them. We come to this as sinners, as much in need of a savior as anyone else out there. We come alongside of the cultural winners, yes, but maybe more. We come alongside of those who at this time of year feel perhaps more acutely than ever loneliness and fear and uncertainty that comes from being travelers in a foreign land. And as we see ourselves and our God with more clarity, as the haze of culture clears just a bit, as we fall down to worship the baby whose birth we celebrated this week, let us continue to grow and mature in our understanding of who we are, what we need, and how God has solved our problem for us. And then let's tell the world whatever its culture, the eternal truths that transcend culture. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, thank you for, um, for your desire that we know enough about you to understand who you are and, and how we fit into your plan and, and how we are to live our lives. And Father, as we sometimes get caught up in our culture with, without identifying which side of which issue we're on, culture should not control us eternally. And, and you work within culture and culture will not defeat you. Culture attempts to defeat you in so many ways, from everything from the cross to the obstacles that we place in front of you today. And yet eternally we know that the ultimate warfare, the warfare with sin, is a battle we cannot win, and it's a battle you have won for us. So remind us, Father, as we celebrate at this time of the year, that the big picture is that you have called us to live the life of a forgiven people, person, a forgiven nation, a forgiven world as we accept the gift you have given to us. And then let us step out, challenge us, encourage us, give us opportunities that we might be the people you want us to be as we reach out to a dying world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.